Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers. And do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Hello, this is Bennett Kelly, and welcome back to the Cyber Law and Business Report. We have another great show, and we're going to be starting off with Jillian York. She's the project coordinator for the Open Net Initiative at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society, and a leading authority on the internet in the Middle East, having lived in Morocco herself. And she's going to talk to us about um, the, the what's been called the Twitter Revolution in Tunisia and Egypt. And then we're going to be having, um, in the second half of the show, we're going to discuss the state of the Internet. Um, the new Akamai um, State of the Internet report is out and gives the latest on who's the baddest and who's the fastest on the Internet. We have David Belson from Akamai who's going to tell us a little bit about that and what exactly it means. But first, let me welcome Jillian. Um, it's great to have you and um, I hope you can you can hear us okay. Yes, I can. I, I'm happy to be here. So, Jillian, um, what what is the Open Net Initiative? Well, so the Open Net Initiative is a project of um, the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard, uh, the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab, and then another group called the SecDev Group in Ottawa. And what we do is uh, research internet filtering um, using. You know, empirical methods. We uh, we actually test in um, about I think about fifty countries. We test um, sites to see if they're being blocked in those countries, and we report on those. And we've actually released uh, two books, with a third one coming soon. And uh, what is your involvement with the internet in the Middle East? Well, so professionally, I mean, I'm I'm you know technically focused on 
a lot of the world, but um, I lived in Morocco for a few years, and I've spent time in other countries in the Middle East and North Africa, and, um, you know, I, it's just a, it's a personal interest that I've been managed to sort of uh, parlay into a professional one. <laughs> so in, in terms of, uh, have you been to Egypt? Uh, no, actually, I have not been to Egypt. But you've, you're in contact with a number of the uh, Twitterers and bloggers there, correct? Yeah, that's true. I've met a lot of them um, through other networks, um, you know, both online and in person at different meetings, um, including some trainings that took place uh, in the Middle East where, you know, we met with, um, or not we met with, I wasn't doing the trainings. I was, I was uh, actually a you know, member of the sort of audience there, the member of the group. Um, but we did some trainings that included a lot of, uh, you know, Egyptian activists and bloggers. And so I've met a lot of the folks who are out there right now. And we were talking about the Twitter revolution and we hear a lot. It, basically, it's, it started in Tunisia. And, and why is it, it, it they're saying this Twitter revolution in, in Tunisia? Well, what exactly happened? Yeah, so in Tunisia, you know, um, and, and I would say... First off, for anyone listening, that I, I don't I don't really like the the terms Twitter revolution, Facebook revolution, but we'll get to that, I'm sure. Um, so what happened in Tunisia was that in December, um, uh, a young man named Mohamed Bouazizi uh, self-immolated, committed suicide, and um, sort of sparked this round of protests. Um, a lot of which sort of took to the internet, particularly to get information out of the country. And so what I would say to that is that um, Tunisia, you know, has, has long had a strong blogosphere and strong uh, anti-censorship community, which includes a lot of folks, um, you know, who, who are activists both offline and on, um, who, you know, have, have opposed uh, Tunisia's heavy internet filtering, internet censorship. Um, and so what happened there was that, uh, you know, the mainstream media wasn't doing a very good job of covering Tunisia in those early weeks. And uh, Tunisians have access, you know, there's about 30% internet penetration there. So Tunisians have access to these tools. And they were using a lot of these tools to get information out of the country and to try to, to bring it to, um, to broader attention. And, and they really, I think, really succeeded in that, particularly with Al Jazeera, where we saw um, Al Jazeera Arabic and English were both utilizing reports from Tunisian blogs and, and Twitter posts and what have you. Um, to broadcast that not only to the world, but then back into Tunisia via satellite, where you know Tunisians really only had access to the state TV, and, and which is heavily censored. And so, um, you know, by those who didn't have access to the internet, were getting information from the internet through Al Jazeera, which I think is really fascinating. And, and how, how did this lead to a, a revolution or an uprising in Egypt? You know, several several thousand miles away, the other side of Africa. Right. Well, you know, so it's tough to say. I mean, I, I, I do believe, even though I'm a bit of a skeptic, I do believe that the online aspect of this um, did have a, a strong influence on those Egyptians. I mean, granted, these, you know, these Egyptian activists have, by and large, the young, the young folks anyway, have by and large been online for years. Egypt has a huge blogosphere, 25% or so internet penetration, but lots of Facebook and Twitter users. Uh, I don't have numbers off the top of my head, unfortunately. Um, but so, you know, a, a lot of those those uh, folks have been, um, you know, actively involved in, in protesting the regime prior to these uh, these recent events. And so what I imagine is that a lot of them saw what was happening in Tunisia and, and sort of capitalized on that momentum. Um, and, I, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of Egyptians that agree. I've also, you know, spoken to some who disagree with that. So, um, you know, take it as you will. But essentially what happened was um, prior to these demonstrations, which were being planned for offline, for, for you know, out in the public um, in Tahrir Square, uh, there were people who were planning 
online for those offline uh, demonstrations. We saw Google documents where you know what might have normally been handed out as a pamphlet was instead put into a Google document and shared with thousands of people. Um, there was a popular Facebook group, the We Are All Khalid Zaid group, and I'll come back to who Khalid Zaid is if you'd like me to in a moment, um, sure. you know, that had hundreds of thousands of RSVPs to attend uh, the January 28th protests. I think there was one for January 25th as well. And then on Twitter, um, prior to January 25th, you actually saw people coordinating and trying to determine what the best hashtag was, which, you know, I mean, in a sense, it's kind of amusing to see that, but, you know, it's also really, really well organized. Um, and so... You know, a lot of, I, I think, online and offline were influencing each other in this sense. A lot of the people involved are undoubtedly not on the Internet. Um, you know, a lot of the people involved in the street protests. But at the same time, a lot of the people who are online who might not have otherwise been involved in political activism um, probably decided to because of what they saw happening. Now, the, it, clearly the Internet was having some role, or at least was perceived to have some role in the uprising that it led the government to actually take the, the unprecedented step of actually shutting down the internet for several days. And I, mean, I think the only other time that it's happened was with the um, Saffron uh, uprising in Burma several years ago. And yeah. so that, don't you think that signals kind of a, a perception that the internet is a threat? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's interesting because prior to this, um, Egypt was one of few countries in the Middle East and North Africa that did not really filter the Internet. I mean, they, they've blocked, you know, one or two sites here and there. They've certainly gone after bloggers for, for content that they posted online. But, you know, Egypt was not actively blocking Facebook or Twitter the way, for example, Syria or Tunisia. Um, t Syria and Tunisia both block a lot of websites, as do most of the countries in the Gulf. Um, and so, you know, Egypt, it was it was sort of unclear what their strategy was prior to that. And so I think it was shocking to a lot of people that they chose to, uh, rather than just block those sites, to just shut down the Internet entirely. And, you know, I mean, I from what I've heard from a lot of people, it seems that that kind of backfired. I saw a lot of bloggers um, over the past couple of days, um, I wouldn't say a lot, a few, though, certainly a handful of bloggers who actually wrote about... Um, the fact that they hadn't planned on going outside, that they thought they were better off blogging and reporting from their neighborhoods, talking about what's happening there. And then when the internet was shut off, they said, oh, you know what? The only thing left to do is to, to go out there into the world. Um, and, you know, and, and they did. And they went out into the streets with everyone else. And um, one of these bloggers, Tarek Amar, who's, who's, uh, I know him personally and I, I read his blog. Um, and that, that's exactly what he said. He said, you know, I thought I was more useful at home, but... You know, when when the government shut off the internet, I said, "That's it. I'm, I'm going out to the streets." Now, we're, we're dealing with a regime that has been in power for thirty years, mm. and um, and so it's a fairly entrenched regime, and which is you know makes this uprising all that more amazing. But do you have a sense of where this is going? What is next? And one thing that that, that seems to be a problem is is there. There's lack of a, of a single figurehead, you know, you know, unlike Burma, which has own Sung Ki, um, that that is at the, the forefront that can really be the face of the movement. Unless you do, you disagree? Um, you know, I think I think maybe it's tough to say from my perspective. I mean, you know, I think there's rumblings um, from all different parts of the world and the media on this, and so um, I mean, I think that's true. I, I think there's it does not seem like there's one clear leader. 
Um, but, you know, I think the perspective from what I've seen in the media over here versus the perspective that I've seen online amongst my Egyptian friends and my and my other friends in the Arab world is very different um, as to what might happen next. And so it's really hard for me to speculate because I feel like I'm getting this, this sort of uh, cognitive dissonance between, you know, what I think Egyptians are saying and then what the U.S. and global media is reporting on what they're saying. So it's it, that's, that's a really tricky question for me to answer. <laughs> well, why, don't, why don't you share what your Egyptian friends are saying, if you don't mind? Sure. Well, you know, I've sensed a lot of frustration um, amongst some of my friends uh, toward what the media here is saying, and that is this this concern. I mean, one of the biggest issues, of course, is the Muslim Brotherhood, um, and you know, I've sensed a lot of frustration um, about all of the all of the talk in the U.S. Um, and you know, global media, Israeli media as well, um, European media, even talking about uh, the Muslim Brotherhood as the main focus and that being their main concern. Now, I mean. You know, I think I, I get where they're coming from, but I, I, what my Egyptian friends are saying is that that's not the concern, that, you know, that they're not the primary uh, focus of what's happening on the ground. They're not, they're not out there in droves the way these um, young youth coalitions, um, pro-democracy activists are. And so, um, so that's sort of what I'm sensing. And, you know, in terms of a clear leader, I think th- that point is definitely made um, amongst Egyptians as well. Um, but I, I haven't really gotten a sense of who they're looking to right now. Now, you, you talked about a Facebook page that says, you know, I am, um, what was the gentleman's name? Ah, Khaled Saeed. Yes, who, who is he? So Khaled Saeed um, was a young man, and, and now I there are also conflicting reports about what who he was exactly, but my understanding is um, an activist, someone who had been involved uh, online, who had uploaded um, uh, images of, of police brutality. And he was beaten by the police uh, in Alexandria last summer and killed. Um, and uh, what happened was some of the people around him were took photographs of his dead body and posted them online, um, posted evidence of what had happened. And, you know, the police and the regime said that, uh, you know, he had been a drug dealer and he had tried to swallow his drugs and then the police, you know, their story was this. The, the story that everyone really believes is that this young man was beaten by Egyptian police. And so what happened was um, shortly after that, I mean, there was a lot of activity on social media around that time. But someone, um, and there have been conflicting reports as to who this is, too, but someone put up a, a page on Facebook called We Are All Khaled Said. And by December of 2010, it had um, about 400,000 members. I think it's got even more than that now. And it's been really sort of um, the central repository for a lot of this information, for people to upload videos, photographs, um, you know, lots of other things. Oh, and, oh sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, and I was just, you know, this is, I, I've been following a lot of the uh, anti-torture movement in Egypt for the few, for the past few years. It's, it's pretty active online. But this was really the first time that I saw so many people you know, sort of coming together around a cause like this, which is not to say that it hadn't been happening, but this really mobilized people. And, you know, I don't know what it was about this young man. I think it was his relatability, really, um, that just really got people uh, active. You know, excuse me, I'm trying not to sneeze. Um, You know, kind of akin to Netta, I believe her name was in Iran. Mm. You know, the the woman who was just happened to be um, walking amidst the demonstrations and was shot. Yeah, oh. yeah. I mean, I think I think you could say, in a sense, that that Khaled Saeed would be, you know, the symbol of of uh, Egyptian young Egyptians in this sense, in the same way that Neda became a symbol last uh, two years ago, rather, uh, in Iran. Now, um, CNN is reporting that um, one, the Egyptian government has released 
um, Google executive, uh, Wael Nonim, um, who we reported last week had been um, detained. And so we're glad to hear he's released. And upon being released, he said he's ready to die to bring change to Egypt. And it's interesting because you know Google's been criticized heavily, and as have some other countries, you know, for their kind of their participation in um, some of the redress. Uh, <laughs> English as a second language. And their participation in re- repressive regimes in China, mm-hmm. for example. And here you have a Google executive openly saying that. More or less, that I'm part of the revolution, and and what, what what's your reaction to that? And do you, you know, do you think that what, what where does that put Google vis-a-vis the Egyptian government? Well, you know, it's I, I'm I'm a fan of Google. I, I have to admit it. I mean, you know, I, I I've been skeptical along with the rest, in and especially you know back in 2004 when they made that decision in China. But I think that since then they really tried to do the right thing. Um, and I think that their their move to back out of China last year or was it two years ago at this point? I don't even know. Um, was a step in the right direction. And since then, we've seen Google really take a stronger stance toward freedom of expression. They actually held a conference that I was uh, fortunate enough to attend last fall in Budapest, um, where they brought together activists, uh, bloggers, policy people, company executives, and, and all sorts of other folks uh, together in one room and, and you know, had this discussion. And, and I really, you know, it was interesting because they were really, really listening to what these uh, a lot of times young, not always young, but uh, dissidents from other countries had to say about about U.S. policy, about Google's company policy. And so I'm generally skeptical of, of corporate uh, initiatives like this, but I think, you know, I think Google really has a lot of good people in the right feelings at heart. And I think, you know, what they, their reaction um, to Wael Khonim, um, and they, they tweeted uh, about his release as well, you know, I think that their reaction... Um, really speaks volumes about their it, dedication. It, it's interesting because, you know, we were just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we we were at a conference in, in Bangkok with a bunch of, you know, Chinese netizens. Right, right. And, um, you know, in China, for example, is now blocking um, things referring to Egypt because yeah. they're, they're, they're afraid that the, um, the, the virus or the fever or whatever it is you want to call it might actually, you know, sweep over to there. And, you know, one thing I don't know what your takeaway from the conference we were at was, but one thing I saw that we we in talking with the Chinese netizens about what's going on here, you know, their their attitude was, listen, we understand the issues you're trying to face. You know, they're great. Um, you guys have made great strides, but you know, to us, nothing matters until we're able to freely communicate on the internet and not have stuff censored, not have stuff taken down, and this you know, the kind of the passion for having that addressed what was really strong I, I got that sense yeah absolutely um you know i mean i i, I hesitate to to talk too much about china because i, I feel um I often feel that there are so many people that are that are you know experts on this, and I'm really not. Um, but one of the interesting things about China, in comparison to the Middle East and North Africa, is that um, China, for better or worse, has thriving local sites that often serve as alternatives um, to the global sites that are blocked. So you know you've got Twitter's blocked, but they've got uh, I forget the name of the Twitter site. YouTube's blocked, but they've got Youku. You know they've got all of these. Chinese native alternatives, and so um, you know, I think a lot of times those those alternative sites really um, serve 
to almost make people complacent towards uh, censorship. Now, of course, that's the average population. Of course, the folks that we were with were the activists, the people who, who really strongly believe in this. And, you know, I, I, of course, take their side. But I do think it's an interesting point, because when you look at the Middle East and North Africa, where there's, um, you know, in some cases, censorship as heavy as China's. Tunisia was like that prior to the revolt. Syria is pretty close. Um, you know, they don't have those local alternatives and so it's it's interesting um, the effect that that has on people and and their perception of uh, of internet freedom. Yeah, one thing one thing that it just I, I took took away and I, I remember was you know, one gentleman being introduced as someone who had had um, you know tweets on he was now on his twelfth blog. Yeah, because, you know, the government had shut down the prior eleventh, and he he quickly said thirteen. <laughs> yeah, it was it was his badge of honor, but. Um, and getting back to Egypt, where do you see this going? Oh, oh, that's such a loaded question. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm not, I'm not an expert on on the politics of Egypt, and so this is really tough to say. I mean, one, you know, well, let me let me back up that in, in terms of um, let me, let me rescue you. <laughs> in, in, in terms of um, we've seen some issues, for example, of shutting down the internet. It, it, what do you? What are the long-term implications of that? Ah, and, yes. And and particularly, for example, you know, it was done through U.S. Comp- you know, pr- technology provided by a U.S. company. Um, and it, do you, do you see that being? Um, since it wasn't successful, I don't know if it, if it will, but do you see it spreading? And you know, what what are the policy implications here in the United States? Hmm. That see, that's an excellent question. So there's there's a whole bunch of different small answers there, and I'll try to run through them. So. The first bit is that um, Egypt is not the only case where U.S.-produced software is being used to censor people. Um, If you look at Yemen um, and uh, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, all of those countries, and perhaps a few more, are using U.S.-made software to filter the Internet. So they're using tools like uh, WebSense and SmartFilter, which I think is owned by McAfee, which is now owned by Intel, maybe? Uh, I don't want to get yes, that wrong. Yes, right. okay. bottom. So, uh, so those tools are being used in Middle Eastern uh, governments to filter Internet from the citizens, and probably in other countries as well, That because that's my area of focus, that's the only one I can state factually. Um, you know, and then obviously we know about Cisco being used in China. So that's one issue. Um, another issue here is... You know, Syria yesterday unblocked Facebook. Um, Facebook has been blocked in Syria since 2007. And so one of my concerns there, you know, we look at that, um, Syria is making the Internet more open. What does that mean? Um, Facebook is not a particularly secure tool. Uh, They require users to use their real names. And although they're rolling out HTTPS, um, so encrypted connection to Facebook, it's not there yet. And so it's actually kind of alarming. So why is Syria bringing Facebook back? Could it be to monitor the populace even further? So there are risks inherent in in such freedoms as well. Um, You know, which is not to say that we should just go ahead and block all these sites for the protection of citizens. But, um, you know, there's definitely a concern there. And then I would say the third concern is, you know, back to the thing about U.S. companies. I I really think that this is an area where the State Department um, needs to be adding their focus. I mean, you know... Internet freedom, uh, the Internet freedom agenda from the State Department has become, uh, you know, 
huge. I mean, the, the whole conversation around 21st century statecraft uh, and, and bringing, you know, making internet freedom an American brand, but then you've got these American tools being used to censor people. Uh, and so, you know, I think that they really ought to turn their focus uh, back home for a minute and, and see how uh, U.S. corporations are affecting the rest of the world. Now, um, Jillian, could you tell us just a, 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 a briefly, what, what exactly is the Berkman Center? Ah, okay. Well, hmm, this is a good one. So the Berkman Center um, studies, well, we study internet and society, and that means a whole bunch of different things. We've been around for about 12 years. I've only been there for two and a half, three of them. Um, and there are a number of different product uh, projects that have evolved over the years, um, but I can speak more to what we're doing currently, which is um, there's a large focus right now on freedom of expression. It's obviously um, an important topic. It's also a hot topic from the media. Um, and we've got a number of projects that focus on that area. There are also projects at the Berkman Center that focus on law, um, more in your your sphere. We have a law lab. Um, we also have the uh, the Citizen Media Law Project, which I think is undergoing a name change, so I, I wouldn't hold me to that one. Um, and then there's also a focus on youth and media and how, how young people are using technology, um, and that's also a, sort of a new project. So we're, we're really, it's a broad uh, area of focus, but we're university-wide at Harvard, um, and that allows uh, more interdisciplinary research. It also allows students from across the university, because we started at the law school. Um, it also allows students from across the university to take part um, in our various projects. Well, we're going to take a break right now. When we come back, we'll have Jillian York um, wrapping up um, with the Berkman Center. Back to you, Brasco. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. If you're looking for a new multifaceted SEO and social media tool set, look for The Raven. Raven has the important tools that every internet marketer needs. Raven offers customized metrics for managing link building campaigns, social media campaigns, with campaign reporting and research tools that you can easily manage. Build up campaign performance for your clients and give your team the tools that will make them soar. If you want to increase your internet marketing revenue, look for The Raven. Go to raventools.com. That's raventools.com. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Hi, I'm Ross Dunn. And I'm John Carcass. We're the hosts of SEO 101 on webmasterradio.fm. Your introductory course on search engine optimization. Tune in and get some free advice and network. So, turn on your computers, open your minds, grab your mouse, and we'll be taking your questions. Get ready to get back to the basics. SEO 101. Catch us Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the search engine optimization channel only on webmasterradio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. 
This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And this is Bennett Kelly. Um, great to have you back. Um, we have Jillian York with us, and she's with the Berkman Center. And in the last couple of minutes, we've been going over um, the, what's been called the Twitter revolution in Egypt and Tunisia. Uh, Jillian, yes. anything further you want to add on what's going on there? I, mean, uh, I know you've been critical somewhat of the coverage in the U.S., yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess I would just conclude, you know, for, for anyone who's who's confused about my, my viewpoint on this at this point, because, um, you know, it's funny, every time I go on and say something on, on the media, I get all these, wait, no, that's not true, and I'm like, but that's not what I said, so uh, let me clarify it. Um, you know, I, I do recognize the value of these tools. I think that Facebook, um, in particular this time around, played a huge role. Um, I think, you know, Google Docs, it's really interesting to, to see all the different ways that they're used, and I'm hoping to write a blog post on that soon. Um, and then, you know, Twitter as well. I mean, even just over the past few days since the Internet's been back, it's been fascinating to see all the different reports from inside Tahrir Square um, over Twitter, you know, and how those often contrast with, say, CNN. Um, you know, but I think also, I think that we should also be wary about, you know, um, the dangers of using these tools for activists, and I think that we should be skeptical about any claim that uh, you know U.S.-built tools are are sort of saving the people of Egypt. I mean, you know, it's really it's really the people who go out and and uh, you know risk their lives um, for their country who who are doing this, not Twitter, not Facebook. Well, um, thank you, it, Jillian. One um, oh, yeah. one of our show we had last week. I mean, excuse me, yesterday, uh, dealing with search marketing, and it was. They've decided to do a, an experiment in in terms of what is reaction to search ads when you use um, pop you know, crisis type terms. Um, for example, like Egypt, that's a hot button item now. You know, what what type of response do you get when you use that in advertising? And um, so that they're, they're toying with the idea of creating some some um, dummy T-shirts just to, to sell just in case. And um, one think the most popular one was mummies for democracy. <laughs> and uh, and so, but uh, we'll be donating any um, proceeds from that to the Berkman Center, um, since we appreciate your help here. Oh, and, that's um, cool. Thank we you. We do have one question um, from the chat board about um, Coptic Christians, oh. and have they have they've had a, a separate role in um, social media in terms since they are such a distinct group, or um, have they just you know, not really stood out one way or the other in the online uh, uprising? Well, you know, I, I actually haven't noticed um, any sort of standing out one way or the other. I mean, I think you know a lot of the a lot of the really really active uh, bloggers and Twitterers, you know, tend to lean toward um, secular politics and inclusiveness. And so I would say that you know to that extent, um, I, I don't notice much uh, religion in the in that sphere. Um, you know, although I think you know, of course, I'm sure the the person chatting noticed as well, but. Um, it's been really awesome to see the commingling and, 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 you know, really protecting of one another amongst Christians and Muslims in Egypt over the past few weeks in these protests. I mean, there's, there's virtually no, or, or absolutely no, for as, as far as I know, um, religious infighting over this right now. And I think that's, it's really amazing. And especially, you know, I mean, I'm not surprised by it because the people that I know aren't like that, but you know, you see so much of it in the news. And so I can understand why, why people are, are really pleased to see this. And it's, it's, Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Jillian. It's been a pleasure, and I hope you'll consider joining us in the future. Thank and you. Uh, our next guest, um, we're going to go from the um, 
Egypt to the state of the internet. Um, who's the fastest and who's the baddest um, guns on the net? And we have David Belson from Akamai Technologies. David, are you on? I'm here. Hi. David, thank you very much for joining us. And it's, coincidentally, David is also based in Cambridge. Are, are you not? I am, yep. Um, but, but none of us have slipped into our accents yet, so let's keep our <laughs> fingers crossed. So um, tell us, what is Akamai Technologies? So Akamai provides uh, cloud optimization services. Uh, and the easiest way to, uh, I guess, sort of give a better sense of that is uh, describing some of the services we offer. Sure. Um, so as you're out online um, uh, watching a video, uh, shopping online, downloading software, or you know, maybe uh, you know, looking through your favorite news sites or, or whatnot, um, there's a, a really good chance that Akamai is behind the scenes there uh, helping those content providers uh, make their sites faster, uh, provide higher quality video, um, make the sites more scalable and more secure. So we have a, a number of services that we offer that we've evolved over the last 12 years um, to enable uh, sites and, and, and media providers to be faster, more reliable, more scalable, more secure. Now, Akamai has been doing the State of the Internet report for how long now? Uh, almost three years. Um, and for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, it's a great report. I'm, I'm a big fan. And Thank it you. provides a, a statistics on both the threats in, in Internet traffic, um, where, the, where they're coming from, but also statistics on Internet penetration and Internet broadband speed, um, both at a, a domestic and international level. Is that, is that a fair summary, or do you want to add yeah, to that? I Absolutely, absolutely. Um, from the, the threats and attack traffic perspective, um, so I guess let me take a step back. Um, we have uh, over 80,000 servers deployed in, in uh, over 1,000 networks around the world. Um, so that gives us a really unique opportunity and a really unique vantage point to, to see what's going on out there um, and, and you know, gather information on usage trends and connectivity trends and things like that. Um, we have a, a set of systems that are out there that are sort of separate from that network uh, that collect attack traffic data. Um, so that's within the, the security section of the report. That's what we're reporting on in terms of, of attacks and, and um, the trends we see there. And then the balance of the report is uh, based on data that we gather through the 80,000 servers um, and through the, uh, the the billions of hundreds of billions of, of content requests a day that we serve for our customers. So we have a, just a tremendous uh, data set that we can we can draw from and analyze, and and then we use that to uh, to publish these statistics. Now, in looking at this report, well, the good news is that the, the U.S. is number one again. Um, the bad <laughs> for the news wrong thing. is that it's in the it's in the threat section, is it not? Right. Um, I guess we've overtaken Russia in that respect, but it's still fairly close between the U.S., Russia, and China, I believe. Yes, I mean, and those, frankly, you know, over the last couple of years, um, the the top slots have. Uh, have shifted quarter to quarter. Uh, so, I mean, the good thing is that, you know, you, the, the U.S. has not been, you know, far and away the number one attack traffic source for three years running. Uh, it, it really depends on the quarter. Um, sometimes it's Russia, sometimes it's China, sometimes it's the U.S. Uh, but I'd say that pro those are probably the top three countries that trade places every quarter. No, I noticed Brazil was a major source, which I guess it just makes sense because they're so large and it's such a growing economy. But actually, what surprised me is that it is a, a great connect, direct segue to our prior guest that one of them, um, the top countries, was Egypt. Right. 
That was surprising. Is, is, is the, have they been on there long? Uh, I'm sorry? Have they been on that list long in terms of um, being I among the top? Don't, I, I, I'd have to check. I don't... Um, Actually, no, because it says uh, in, in the report, uh, you know, we, I think this is the, one of the first quarters that they were in the top ten. Um, so it, it really, you know, I, I'm not sure that we can really sort of cleanly tie it to, um, you know, the, the, the growing unrest there. Oh, no, uh, I wasn't, and, but I, I just thought okay. it was coincidental. Um, yeah, but, I mean, it, it, the, 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 the countries that we see for the attack traffic is, you, you could look at, the, okay, United States, Russia, China, okay, you know, you can kind of, guess those at the very right. least. Um, but then there are others like Egypt and, and Peru and, and Germany's That's been on there for a while. Too, um, Poland pops on and off every so often. Romania's on and off every so often. Um, and, you know, people have asked in the past, is there any sort of correlation between the countries that have very strong connectivity and the attack traffic activity? And we really haven't found any good correlation to date. You know, otherwise you'd see South Korea and Japan at the top of the list, or you right. know, at least within the top ten, and neither of them are there. Yeah, Peru so, is curious. Is there a correlation between you know, kind of um, the degree they have of organized mobs um, doing internet fraud? Is is that is that the driving factor, or you know, I don't know. I've never actually I've never actually dug into it from that perspective. Uh, it would be interesting would to look at and, and, and look at the <laughs> a look survey at the, of organized crime would not be a fun one. Um, I would have but, to use, you know, sort of secondary information, of course. <laughs> I uh, that. that would be something to – I'll have to see if there's a way that I can kind of find some information on that. You know, the top organized crime countries and see if there's any sort of correlation between these, uh, these attack stats and, and uh, those locations. Now, another part on the threat level was that, you know, in some ways the stuff that we're talking about now in terms of the U.S., Russia, and China um, mm-hmm. on the um, – the internet level is, is somewhat antiquated because the, really the new threats are, are at the mobile level. This is the really emerging area, and you know, as more and more consu- users transfer to a mobile platform, you know, this right. is really the hot area. And you know, who's who's the uh, who are the leaders? Who who are the baddest guns on the internet and the <laughs> mobile area? Um, so in the mobile space, what we found was um, that Italy, uh, far and away, uh, had, was the source of the most attack traffic from mobile networks, um, followed by the United Kingdom and uh, Chile as number three. Um, so the, the, mobile, the mobile data that we provide is a subset of the, the larger attack traffic information that we have earlier in the report. Um, so what we're doing is we are working to identify uh, known mobile network providers and then uh, basically selecting out the uh, attack traffic data from those networks. And um, in terms of, we talked a little bit about the baddest, we're going to talk a little bit about the fastest um, Mm -hmm. players on the Internet, and you you do the various levels, both city, state, and then um, countrywide um, statistics. And I noticed, for example, at the state level in the United States, uh, the, the top four states you have are Delaware, Rhode Island, District of Columbia, and Hawaii. Um, right. Is there anything – why those four states? Anything uh, they do differently? Um, I think the part of it is uh, size. Um, and with size um, – uh, what's the term I'm thinking of? Um, population density. Um, okay. So I, I think that helps when you have uh, you know, a, a larger group of people that are clustered uh, more closely together. Uh, and, and that certainly helps. I know that in, in places like Delaware, I think there have been some initiatives 
some some uh, community initiatives or some municipal initiatives to bring higher speed connectivity. Um, in fact, after this report, I was uh, corresponding with uh, a gentleman from Hawaii who um, is part of their, their government team that's working on improving broadband access in, in the state. Um, so, you know, Hawaii covers a, a large land area, but a lot of it is uninhabited, or, you know, you have a few major cities that are, uh, you know, very, uh, not very high population density, but are, but are higher, you know, and then in, in comparison to somewhere like California, where people are much more spread out. True. And, um, you know, for example, Los Angeles County is bigger than probably Rhode Island and Delaware. It, each, it, it probably all combined, well. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, the, in terms of who is the fastest city in the U.S., it's San Jose, which I guess previously had been Berkeley, I think, right? Right. Yeah, so there was some definitely some shifting going on this quarter um, in terms of uh, the cities, uh, which, is, which was interesting. And you know, it, it's not – Clear, unfortunately, what drives uh, some of the shifts. Um, you know, one of the things we found early on when we started looking at the cities about a year ago uh, was we put, you know, we published this, this top hundred list, and you know, probably ninety of them were cities where you could find a college or university. So we we kind of identified that and said, okay, wait a minute, there's something that's that's skewing the data here. So we we wound up. Working on identifying all the network providers, or all the sorry, all the the network identifiers for the colleges and universities, and, and pulled that data set out, which we believe gives us a little bit more of a um, pure is the wrong word, but a a, a less clouded uh, view of of actual connectivity within these given cities. Okay, well, we're gonna, we're going to talk about this more when we come back. We have to jump to a break. But when we come back, a little bit more about who are the fastest guns on the internet. This is um, Cyber Law and Business Report. Brasco? Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Two, one, booster ignition. Ascend into new heights of ranking and revenue with a search engine-friendly online shopping cart that's ready for liftoff. Introducing Ascender Cart. Ascender Cart optimizes your shopping cart with easy-to-use SEO tools that will help build keywords, titles, and tags for top search engine rankings. Get all of the advantages of having a shopping cart on your site and monitor your progress with regular reports in just a click. Prepare to launch your shopping cart to the top of the search engines with AscenderCart. Learn more about what AscenderCart can do for you at AscenderCart.com. A-S-C-E-N-D-E-R-C-A-R-T.com. Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. 
Life Tips, Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Entertainment Channel, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And this is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center, welcoming you back for our final segment here with David Belson with Akamai Technologies. Now, David, we were talking about San Jose being the fastest city in the U.S., but it's only the 46th fastest in the world. Right. Um, and what the fastest being, was it Tejan, South Korea? Taegu, uh, South Korea, but Tejan was uh, number two. Yep. Okay. Um, and then in terms of um, on a country level, the top countries were South Korea in order, South Korea, Hong Kong, Japan, Romania, Latvia, Belgium, and then the United States. And it's what do you attribute the, the, the U.S. rank um, relative to the other countries to? And, and, and does that really have any um, economic significance? Um, I think that – well, I think the reason that many of the other countries are ranking higher on the list is because of – uh, you know, I think just stronger investment and, and in many cases, uh, significant government backing and, and government push around bringing higher speed connectivity to um, to the citizens. Uh, South Korea has has done a number of government programs in that respect, and uh, has has you know, uh, in, in essence, mandated uh, but also funded um, bringing uh, high speed connectivity. They they had a uh, program back in 2005. Where they uh, basically said that, that the the telcos needed to bring uh, one megabit a second connectivity to to everybody, uh, and they've now uh, partially funded a uh, program to bring uh, gigabit connectivity to everybody. Um, I think part of the challenge in the U.S. is the uh, let's see how do I say it? Um, <laughs> it, it? Part of it is is a lot of it has to do with competition, frankly. Uh, and, and in some locations, you have multiple providers competing for business, and you'll have, uh, I think, from that, a, a higher connection speeds available in a given area uh, because they want to either attract or keep new customers. In many cases, though, you have um, a single provider uh, servicing an area for broadband, and in that case, there's really no incentive for them to invest any additional money in uh, you know, providing much, much higher speeds. Um, from an economic perspective, you know, I think it's a it, it, our rank is makes makes for good rallying and saying, you know, you know, gee, we're not number one. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think people are ultimately able to get done uh, what they want to get done online with, you know, moving banking online and shopping online, things like that. Uh, I guess could, the question would be to what extent it maybe delays deployment of advanced technologies on the web. You know, for example, use of telemedicine. Um, I, I actually did a calculation, and it, it may not be entirely accurate, but I took at how long it would take to transfer 30 MRIs at both the average speed in the U.S. and the average speed in Japan. And um, it would take um, – in Japan, it would take seven hours um, – actually, it would take seven hours to transfer the 30 MRIs at the average U.S. broadband speed um, compared to only 43 minutes in Japan during the remainder of their time – they could they would be able to download all six Star Wars movies nearly seven times. 
and so just you know, in terms of productivity and to the extent that there's new um, technologies being deployed that are only available for higher speed capability, you know, it right. seems that we, we, we could be um, falling behind in the, the next wave of you know, Web 2.0 or 3.0. Well, to, to some extent, but I think I think we need to be careful there of, of sort of mixing use cases. Where I mean, so your example is a good one, uh, but the data that's presented in the report, remember, is uh, an average, and that's going to be an average across True. consumer connectivity, corporate connectivity, things like that. So, for the purposes of transferring MRIs, the, the chances that I'm going to have 30 MRIs at home that I need to send to somebody are probably fairly slim, whereas from you know, a university hospital to another university hospital or from a university hospital to an online healthcare vault or something like that, chances are good that they're going to have very high-speed connectivity there. Um, the Star Wars downloads, on the other hand, I think is, is a lot of where the attention has been focused. And uh, not, not Star Wars specifically, obviously, but around, uh, you know, can the, the broadband yeah, speeds that are available in the U.S. support the, the, high vent, the, 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 high demand, the high quality streaming that, you know, users are looking to replace cable with? And, um, and so in terms of doing this report, what aspect do you find the most um, enlightening or most rewarding um, since you, you are this, you're in charge of this report, correct? Yes. Um, I think it's really interesting just to be able to provide, um, you know, th- this level of visibility to, to various folks. I think, you know, in the three years that I've done the report, um, you know, we, we've worked with the FCC on, on, you know, providing some data for their, uh, the broadband report that they did last year. Mm-hmm. Um, we've worked with, var- you know, I've interacted with folks at the OECD uh, and, and in various states and countries, or, you know, with their broadband initiatives. And it's just... Uh, it's it's nice to see that you know the data that we're collecting is uh, bringing value to to you know folks across the internet and is ultimately hope you know hopefully is helping to improve um, broadband availability and, and broadband speeds in various areas. And are are you seeing any positive trends in terms of increasing our uh, broadband deployment? I think so, yeah. So if you look at, um, you know, the average connection speeds are, are tending to go up quarter over quarter and, and year over year. Um, broadband and high broadband adoption are, are going up. Um, you know, I think in, 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 even within the U.S. itself, with, you know, at a state level, uh, it, it tends to be um, very strong. I think that, you know, some of the changes you're seeing, uh, if, you know, if you are seeing a decline in any of the metrics, it tends to be fairly minimal, um, which can just be, in some cases, fluctuation around, uh, some number of users that were, uh, like for instance, in Delaware with their their broadband connectivity and their high broadband connectivity, um, some of them may have been just over the threshold that we measure, and so the loss of uh, a few kilobits a second can can drop them into or out of a, a given bucket. Now, in, in looking at the different countries, you know, at a nation by nation level, mm-hmm. is there a cyber divide? You know, are there some countries that are just so far behind? That they're almost practically not in, in the internet age. You know, for example, Cuba or some African countries. Yes, I mean, I think that's what we're seeing. Uh, in, in, there are a number of countries, you know, in, in small Pacific islands and uh, in sort of Central Africa. Uh, I think we're definitely seeing that where um, their broadband is, is almost the inverse of uh, places like South Korea and Japan, where. Um, you know, in, in small country, it, it's funny because we have a, a section on narrowband connectivity or, or connections to Akamai at speeds below 
256 kilobits a second. And we're seeing countries like Mayotte and uh, Tonga, which are in the high 90s. Uh, so, so, you know, near, nearly all of the connections to Akamai are at slow speeds. And we're seeing countries that have average connection speeds of, uh, you know, 40 kilobits a second and, and things like that. Compared to what's the high-speed connection per second? Right. I'm, I'm sorry? You know, compared just to, by order of magnitude, what, what would be the average broadband connection in the U.S.? Uh, uh, broad, average broadband adoption rates in the U.S. is um, about 74%. So 70, oh, no, so in terms of the, you're talking about two kilobits talk. per second, what would the U.S. be per second be kilobits? Oh, the average connection speed in the U.S.? Yeah. Is... Um, uh, five megabits a second. Okay, so it's definitely orders of magnitude less. Now we have a question on the chat board, and is that wonder you have any sense of whether or point technological advancements will be where wireless will be easily accessible for desktop and laptop computers as it is on smartphones? Uh, let me take a look at that. You know, such um, as like maybe like a whole metropolitan area, which which would be wireless. Wireless is accessible. Um, Good question. I mean, I think that we're starting to see um, more of the wireless providers rolling out the 4G technologies. Um, so I think that I think part of it is that the technology also needs to be built into the things like the laptops, um, where today, in order to get online with 4G for most laptops, you need a uh, you know a, a card or a dongle um, that uh, you know you you in a sense, a modem. Um, and I think that, you know, if those chipsets begin getting embedded within the, you know, within the systems themselves, I think that will make getting in line a lot easier. Um, I think you're also starting to see, in many cases, sort of a merger of functionality between um, things like laptops and, and tablets. And the Correct. tablets, obviously, are, are supporting not only Wi-Fi, but also 3G and 4G technologies. Um, so I think that the challenge will be that if you live in a metropolitan area, um, It'll happen sooner rather than later. If you're living uh, in, a, in a less populated area, uh, you know somewhere where you're, you're, you're challenged to get a phone signal today anyway, um, that uh, that may be you know longer in coming. Well, David, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you. And, you're welcome. Um, thank you for having me. It's I've always looked forward to your reports, and it, you can get the report online at um, akamai.com stated slash state of the internet. Um, you just register, and they'll, they'll send you the report. And it's just great data. And so I look forward to seeing who's number one next um, next quarter, and, um, and maybe we'll have you back then. Thank you very very much, David. Sounds good. Thank you. Now, um, in the time we have left, one thing that we hope to do in this show is to be able to answer your questions. And so to the extent that you have questions in the chat room or even during the week, if questions come up, you can always send a, a, a question our way to um, – clbrquestions at gmail.com and so if you have any questions at all on any internet legal topic or policy topic feel free to submit it our way we'd love to um, include you into the discussion and um, so what do we have Brasco do we have anything in the chat board before we wrap up no um, looks like you got to all the questions that was asked and I know you wanted to go ahead and celebrate something that happened uh, on this day in history Yes, today is a very significant day in history. It is the 47th anniversary of the Beatles' first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. 
And Brasco, I know you, you, you gave us the privilege of hearing you sing I Got You, Babe, um, last week in light of Groundhog Day. Do you, do you fear to, care to venture an attempt at the, the Fab Four? If it'll play. Here we go. Here we go. Well, this is the Fab Four sending us oh, away. Yeah. Brasco, thank you, and thank you, Tell everyone, you for joining us next week. I think you'll understand when I say that something. I wanna hold your hand. I wanna hold your hand. I wanna hold your hand. Bye, everybody. <laughs> you like that? That was great. Did you hear me scream? No, I heard. So, uh, all right, we'll get shut down by the FCC now. But <laughs> join us next Wednesday, 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, folks. Thank you. Send it to the morning label today. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.